This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Aurora, and Aurora was married to a covert narcissist. It's a story of trauma responses, future faking, coming out, and changing abuse tactics. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. This is a podcast that gives a voice to survivors of toxic relationships. I am Brandon Chadwick, but my friends call me Chad, and thanks for tuning into this episode. So what is a narcissist, you may ask? Well, for the purposes of this podcast, we refer to a narcissist as anyone who has displayed a pattern of behavior that shows a limited capacity to appreciate others' perspectives. It is that simple. And now, before we get to our episode with Aurora, I just want to tell everyone in the Narcissist Apocalypse community that wants to be on our show, please go to NarcissistApocalypse.com. At the top of the page, there's a guest form button. Press that button, fill out the form, and away we will go from there. Another way to be on our show is to be part of our Letters to My Narcissist compilation episode. And again, go to NarcissistApocalypse.com. On the side of the page, it says Send Voicemail. You click that button, it records up to five minutes. Press it twice, records up to ten We are accumulating these letters for a volume six of our Letters to My Narcissist compilation episode. And if you do not want to read the letter yourself and you want me or my old pal Melissa to read the letter for you, just send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com. So now a little bit of an announcement. You know, this show, our groups and our support services are paid for on a real shoestring budget. So if you think what we offer with this podcast is valuable, not just to you, but to other people as well, please consider donating to our cause. Right now, every expense comes directly out of my own pocket. And in order to grow the show, reach a larger audience and help more people, we need or a little bit of help. So sponsoring an episode of this podcast is a way to make a really big difference. And at the same time, you'll be helping thousands of survivors too. 
And this episode is sponsored by Fern Brazelaw. And from the bottom of my heart, Fern Brazelaw, thank you so much for doing this, for coming up with the idea for doing this. And from everyone who is listening, you know, everyone is thanking you, Fern. I am thanking you seriously. A big, big, huge thank you, Fern. You are my hero today. You were my hero last <laughs> week when we discussed all of this. And I swear, really, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for, for doing this. And for everyone else who is listening, if, if you want to sponsor next week's episodes or multiple episodes, we've set up a payment on our Patreon. So please go to our Patreon at patreon.com slash Narcissist Apocalypse, and you will get a special thank you at the beginning of each episode if you want to sponsor one uh, from here on out. So again, thank you to Fern for sponsoring this week's episode. And now, without further ado, my episode with Aurora is about to come up. We discussed briefly, uh, there's talk of sexual abuse. There's talk of physical abuse. There's trigger warnings there. There's every abuse here. There's emotional abuse. There's financial abuse. This was an episode where, uh, after we recorded it, I think I really must have been tired after like it might've been late at night. I think when we recorded it and I remember I, I put it on the Patreon and I said, Hey, this episode, uh, needs work. I need notes uh, on this. And there was one person on our Patreon that wrote, uh, listened to it cause I hadn't listened to back yet. And they said, this episode doesn't, uh, need notes. And I still hadn't listened to it. And I finally re-listened to it. And I have no idea what I was thinking about uh, anything needing notes or anything. Because this episode is, um, from start to finish, a uh, pretty interesting episode. It's jam-packed with so many quotes. It is such a helpful episode. You know, it's not there, it's a faith abuse story, but it's not just a faith abuse story. It's all different types of abuse that are going on here. You'll resonate a lot with it. And I really want to thank Aurora for being part of the show. Uh, she's an amazing person, uh, and you'll hear it in her voice of how far she's come. And, you know, uh, without further ado, big thank you to Aurora for doing the show. Here is my episode with Aurora. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. With me today, I have Aurora. How are you? I'm doing great, thanks. Well, today you are here to tell a story, and you're about to tell a story of growing up in a religious family, how that shaped you, uh, you know, and how the abuse inside that family shaped you as well. And then you're also going to tell us a story about being in a relationship with a covert narcissist after the fact and how uh, that affected you. But also we're going to hear a coming of age story at the same time and everything you've discovered about yourself. So I just want to thank you for being here today. I know you're going to help a lot of people. And now without further ado, Aurora, the floor is now yours. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for having me um, a part of a big piece of my journey out of narcissistic abuse has been just sharing my story and um, how sharing helps both me and then what I'm realizing is how much it helps other people who have experienced similar things. Um, All right, so I'm just going to start from the beginning, Uh, the beginning being a long, long time ago. Um, And as you mentioned, I was raised in a religious household, um, 
while there are so many good things that can come from that, um, there's also a lot that um, can condition you to accept certain behaviors. Um, my One of my parents worked for a church, and um, there were a lot of expectations put onto us as not only a family and a family unit, but also as individuals. Um, you know, there was sort of this them that was always watching us, you know, this greater them, the church people, the church leadership, the, uh, you know, and, and anything that we did as kids was a reflection on, um, you know, my parents. And so there was just a lot of pressure to be a certain way, to do things a certain way as kids. Um, now, you know, in my deconstruction process and in uh, finding community with other, um, you know, ex-evangelicals, there's a, there's definitely um, a spectrum out there. There's always somebody who had it worse and somebody who, um, you know, experienced worse things in their childhood, right? But what I've learned now in my therapy journey is, how much I was conditioned and how much I learned to have that mindset, to minimize what I had been through. I was not beaten as a child, and I am so grateful for that. Um, I was not deprived of any physical need, and that is so fantastic. So because of those things um, and, you know, you learn to minimize the things that you do experience, the trauma that you do endure as a child. Uh, another, you know, major component in that is um, I would travel with my family to do just short-term mission trips, uh, typically abroad in third-world countries. So when, as a, as a young child and all through your childhood, you are on, you know, sort of a seasonal basis, like during the summers, we would go and spend time, you know, building homes and doing all these things that you're exposed to this extreme poverty, this extreme way of life. Um, while that does provide and sort of instill in you this great sense of gratitude as a child, it also is a great tool to help you minimize your issues, right? I mean, every year I was going and I was being reminded, my life is not this. My life is not um, as bad as it is here, Right. So the neglect that I'm experiencing, um, the shame that I'm enduring, the name-calling, the, you know, all these things that I'm enduring are not as big of a deal, right? Because I go to a good school. I have food on the table. I, you know, there's um, so much of my world was just through this toxic lens that obviously I did not know was toxic at the time. Um, so I think another big component is even how cyclical and generational abuse can be within family structures. Uh, so, for instance, my um, both of my parents came from not um, from from pretty toxic family structures. Uh, you know, there was this mentality of staying married no matter what. <laughs> so recently, I was at my grandfather's funeral. And um, he was married to my grandmother for 52 years. And my grandmother, while 
you know, obviously was never diagnosed or anything. I believe that she um, she was both narcissistic and then potentially had a borderline personality disorder. Um, either way, she touched on she she manifested a lot of the criteria of any of those uh, cluster B personality disorders. Um, but at my grandfather's funeral, this quiet, meek, mild, this codependent enabler. Um, all we talked about was her. All anyone talked about was how he was such a saint for having stayed with her his whole life and how that that already was just so ingrained in me, even as a child, to stay in a relationship. It's more important to be married. It's more important to reflect that that's what God wants for you than to protect yourself, than to believe yourself, to understand yourself. Um, so those were sort of like those underlying, you know, themes in my childhood, in my youth that really set the stage and set a good pattern for me to then tolerate the abuse that I um, endured later in life. Another major component, too, that um, played a big role in my story um, is also in my sexuality. So from a young age, um, probably as young as I can remember, I was always attracted to girls. Um, and so much of what the church can teach and preach about sexuality and homosexuality specifically is um, it teaches you to gaslight yourself. It teaches you to discredit your own reality with those, sure, well-meaning maybe phrases of this is just a phase. You'll grow out of this. Um, you don't feel that way. Uh, you know, everybody thinks that at some point or, you know, there's all these things that you, I was, that was another major piece that had me so conditioned to gaslighting. The church is an expert <laughs> gaslighter. Um, there's so much of it that is just, you, you know, you might be feeling, even in a sermon, you might be feeling this, but that's not what God wants. God wants this. And so doubt yourself and trust in this. And so there were so many pieces of this puzzle that just fell perfectly for me to um, learn in my crucial developmental years to not trust myself, to not trust my instincts, to not trust that I knew what I wanted. And um, that self-doubt played a major role in staying in this abusive relationship uh, for a long, long time. So while you're growing up, let's say you're a teenager, and are you questioning things? Are you questioning the system that you're in? Do you have a feeling that something isn't adding up? Or at this point, you don't have enough of a, what's the best way to put it, of a frame of reference of what life is like somewhere else to understand that this doesn't work for you or this whole system, um, something here doesn't feel right to me? That's a great question. So I, I would like to say I fell somewhere in the middle of those things. I was not raised in such a such a conservative Christian environment to where 
I couldn't wear pants or I could, you know, like I, I had these, I went to public school. I, I had a semi-normal childhood and I was well aware of a lot of the realities of the world. Um, I wasn't overly sheltered in that way, but what kept me there was knowing that if I chose these other things, that I would not find the love and acceptance from my family that I desperately wanted. And so that was sort of the theme of my childhood was um, we always had free choice, right? We had this, we were able to choose if we wanted this. We had to go and attend church, but we didn't have to believe it if we didn't want to. But we knew that that would come with the cost, that would come with the rejection from our parents, that I was, I think, 15 years old. And at that point, I was obviously already questioning, questioning my sexuality. Um, you know, I was already experimenting with it. And I... I remember vividly my dad told me, um, you know, he was sort of just sitting me down for, you know, a normal little heart-to-heart, like, oh, I'm here. Um, I'm always here for you if you need help. What he was really getting at was, like, if you ever find yourself in a pickle, right, like you're drunk at a party or something like that, like, like, call, call me. I will come and get you. So he was giving me this reassurance of, like, I am here. I'm always here for you. I will always do anything you need. And he ended it with just don't be a lesbian. And sorry. Um, And I think that was the moment when I knew that even if I was bisexual or, or, you know, I, I had no term or understanding for what my sexuality was at that point. But at that point, I knew that I had to choose. I had to choose a certain thing to, um, in order to earn their love. I had to be a certain way. I had to give up these pieces of me. Um. So it it was it was both. It was I would say, I probably was aware that there was that I lived in this Christian bubble, right? That I lived in this little um, perfect world. Um, And I mean, honestly, I was, I started drinking when I was 15. I, like, I I wasn't this perfect Christian girl. Um, I, but I was able to hide that side of me really well. Um, You know, and I turned to all kinds of things to just deal with the pain. Um, But yeah, so it was it was both and. I, I knew about the rest of the world, but I was still choosing um, the love and acceptance from my family. So once you left, uh, I guess, the home or you turned 18, what were the expectations of what your life was supposed to look like or what you were supposed to be mm-hmm. uh, like, yeah. did they, did they want you to be um, like, you know, independent 
and you know get a degree and and you know find a you know a job that you liked, or was the expectation uh, otherwise that your you know family, you know build a family, et cetera, et cetera, and um, kind of not do as you're told, but like this is you know silently maybe what's expected, and then also um, what was the actuality of that. So I would say it was, again, a both-and situation. So there were just a lot of expectations. Um, You know, there was the expectation of an education. So to go to school, to get a degree, to get a good job, um, while also the expectation of, you know, find a husband, settle down, have children. Um, You know, there, there are sort of those, even if those were slightly unspoken, um, but those expectations uh, within our family structure. So <laughs> the way I was able to sort of manage all of that was I went to the university where my parents met, um, and I majored in the major that my dad majored in, uh, just, you know, seeking more and more approval. And um, I ended up dating um, my now ex-husband. We started dating when we were in college. So it was sort of this perfect storm of finally being what my parents wanted me to be. I was, um, you know, getting an education. I was um, going to graduate, get a good job, and and the cherry on top. I was going to walk out of college with, um, you know, jokingly they call it getting your MRS degree, um, your Mrs. degree. So, um, so then I was going to walk out of college also. Um, you know, getting married, engaged and getting married. Um, so I, I was just still so stuck in that toxic family structure of my own upbringing that I, I knew that I needed these things. Um, and obviously, I mean, being a human being who's capable of love, you know, I, I also wanted these things on, on some level. I wanted that, you know, I wanted marriage. I wanted a companionship. I wanted, um, a relationship. And uh, so, yeah, so now I'll just dive into how um, he and I met. Mm-hmm. Was that good? Oh, yeah, We're kind sure. of at that point. Yeah, so. yeah, go for it. Okay. Um, so we met through a mutual friend. Um, my best friend, her, she was dating a guy in the dorm room um, adjacent to his. So, there, you know, it was kind of like I was hanging out with my friend, and she was with her boyfriend, and he brought his friends, and so there was just sort of this mutual group, and um, we all went to a church ministry together at um, at the university that we went to, and um, I just remember he was so he was quiet, he was so kind and patient. Um, he was he was. rock, like the steady rock, if that makes sense. And I, and I was kind of all over the place. I was, you know, trying to get, you know, get myself out of my party girl phase. And I was trying to, um, again, be what my parents wanted me to be. I was trying to just get my life on a better path, um, so to speak. And, um, and he was just this solid, quiet, so kind, incredibly kind person. Um, so early on, we, um, 
you know, there there were a lot of a lot of the future faking. I mean, really everything that goes hand in hand with um, narcissistic abuse was there. Um, just sort of him even laying the groundwork for um, the gaslighting that would come later once the devaluation and the manipulation and the stonewalling began. Um, but really early on in our dating and in, even in our engagement period, um, there was not a lot of those major red flags. Um, anything that came up that was a red flag, um, I, I remember thinking and just accepting, we are young, right? Like we were, we were 19 when we started dating. And so, um, and we got married when we were 22 years old. So I remember thinking, you know what? Like he's just still young. He will grow out of some of this, right? Like this is, this is something that he can learn over time. Um, and so that was a lot of what sort of, you know, kept me from acting on any of, any of the red flags that came up early in our dating, which were very few and far between. Um, the, the mask, the narcissistic mask was there um, and very strong through our dating and our engagement period. Um, I remember we were engaged at that point. It was spring semester of senior year of college, and my mom um, had come up to visit just for a little bit, and she was asking me, you know, like, why, why marry him? And I remember telling her, I've never met anyone this kind before. I've never met someone who was so just wholeheartedly kind. And, and I told her, it doesn't matter what life is going to bring us, like, whatever challenges. Like, I know that life gets hard and, and we're young and we have so much we're going to face, but if I can face it with someone this kind, with someone who cares about me this much and who is on my team this much, like, I know we'll get through anything. Um, so I was fully, I mean, I was either fully blinded by it, but honestly, I have spent, you know, years in therapy unpacking all of this. And I, I for the life of me, cannot think of any major, major red flags early, early on in my relationship with the narcissist. I have a question. Um, yeah, of course. What was his family like? That's exactly what I was about to get to. So I'm, I'm working through my sheet here so I don't forget anything. And next one, red flags, his family. Okay. Because so, um, I, was, I, was I was about to say, you know, if he's not showing any signs, when you meet his family, family tree, if you yeah. meet his family, they might not have the same... Um, math, they, they, they might, they may not be, uh, you know, hold, holding onto their masks in the same way yeah. and on the best behavior. Absolutely. So maybe here we go. Right? Yeah. So, so, <laughs> so because it's, um, here you, go. <laughs> you know, for people who are listening, who are young right now, sometimes mm -hmm. the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And Absolutely. so if you're paying attention to how the family is acting uh, and, and everything, you know, keep that in mind. So, yes, the, the biggest red flag early on, beyond just sort of our age and my ability to sort of minimize, like, oh, he'll get out, he'll grow out of this. It, that's no big deal. And then even sort of the religious aspects of our, you know, relationship. But we'll get into more of that later. 
definitely his family. So he is the golden child in the toxic family structure within his family. So he is just put together. He has all his ducks in a row. He is kind and nice and organized. And his family, I, I personally have never, and I'm an extrovert. I'm an extreme extrovert. I have a lot of friends. I um, meet a lot of different people. I have never met a family structure that was more toxic, more obviously toxic, and more um, noticeably just different. Um, at the time, what I sort of chalked it up to was just, you know, some of them are shy or, um, you know, they just they just need to kind of figure it out. Again, my, my metric for measuring a healthy family was already skewed because I was told that my family was extremely healthy. I was told that my family was incredible, right? We had that enmeshment. We had that our family is great. We do all these trips together. We do all these things. We're so close. When in reality, that's not what I felt with my family, right? And I was experiencing that narcissistic cycle of abuse within my family even. And so for me to see this, for me to reject him because of his family felt counterintuitive. <laughs> like it felt, it felt dishonest because, A, they, they had a lot of the toxic traits that my family had. It manifested very differently, but they had a lot of the same toxic traits. But how could I, you know, disown him because of his family when he was accepting me because of my family? like despite my family, I should say. So I think, um, so his family structure, uh, his parents are now divorced, and um, I don't know much about his father. That's been a big sort of piece of my journey in out of all of this um, because um, my ex, he shared very little about his childhood. He never really opened up about much of his childhood or much of his upbringing. Um, he would always say he didn't remember, um, which, uh, if you know anything about how the mind reacts to trauma, um, part of that could be true. It could be some solid dissociation, right? He could be, his mind is protecting him from the trauma of his childhood, and so he truly does not remember. But it could also be, you know, just another manipulation tactic of the narcissist um, to to not share too much of what he has going on, but to just want to hear what I have going on. Um, so, you know, his his siblings, the one I believe is diagnosed uh, borderline personality disorder, um, but that didn't come until more recent years. Um, if I had to, you know, from what I know, I believe there's also some antisocial um personality disorder and um, and there's extreme codependency there's extreme um, enmeshment and uh, the role reversal the um, you know it's it's extremely extremely toxic the verbal abuse uh, the manipulation the gaslighting they they all do that to each other and with each other um, but again, I did not know these terms 
I didn't, I didn't know any of this. I thought, sure, his family's messed up. And honestly, as someone who's extremely empathetic, that was almost a, a selling point for him. I could love him out of this terrible family, right? I could, I could give him the space to finally experience what love would look like instead of having to face the fact that whatever his upbringing was had a major effect on who he is and would become. Um, yeah, so, so then the, the mask didn't really flip, and the, the reality, I guess, um, it, it didn't really set in until we were formally married. So we got married right after college, uh, the summer after our senior year of college, and we immediately moved down um, just to down to the south um, in the United States, and um, just a different state, different city. Um, one of our main motivations in that, one of my main motivations in that, was to get further away from his family um, and the codependent expectations they had for us. Um, you know, like having dinner over there several nights a week or, you know, and it was, there needed to be, because they, they were so disrespectful of boundaries and would not understand if we said, no, we're going to do this. They, we needed a physical boundary. We needed something bigger. So was he complaining about the boundaries to you or was it something that you noticed on your own? Um, so a lot of that I sort of noticed on my own, and I was always sort of trying to get him to to see it, right? But him being the golden child, him also with his narcissistic traits, it was so much of, like, now knowing what I know, he, he didn't want to reject them because they were a piece of him, you know? So, so he... Um, he would always try to sort of spin it like they meant well, and, and yes, they have some issues, but, you know, it's, again, not minimizing. So he he would get on, on the same page as me sometimes um, when it benefited him, and then sometimes he would blame me for having left and, you know, for having moved or for taking him away from his family. Um, but it really just, that was part of that cycle of abuse. It really depended on the day, right? It was, if he was love bombing, then it was, yeah, my family's messed up and, you know, it's good that we get some space. Um, but then if it was the devaluation, then it was, no, this is, this is your fault. Like, why are you taking me away from my family? They actually care about me, all this stuff. Um, Yeah. <laughs> So once we were, once we had moved and settled down, um, that was when I started noticing for the first time, um, just this, even small little lies. Um, so I had flown down, uh, to the city where we were living and I, we sent me down on, with a one-way ticket to find a job. Um, and I got a job the next day. So then he just had to pack up all our stuff and drive down. And he was driving down with his friend uh, from college and like to help him. And um, then when he arrived, his friend wasn't with him. And I, I was so confused because as I had spoken with him on the phone while we were moving, 
you know, he would like whisper and be like, oh, he's sleeping right now. You know, like I can't, I can't talk. Like it was this, it was so strange. Like just these small little, little things where he didn't necessarily even have to lie about, but he chose to. Um, yeah. And then um, as soon as we were down there, the blame game really picked up. Um, it was a lot of blame for, um, he was really angry that we had moved down there, that he had no say in it, and that I was, you know, extremely controlling, and that this was all me manipulating him. That was really sort of when that, that um, the gaslighting of those types of um, underlying um Gosh, sorry, I can't think of the word. Uh, you know, he was he was constantly telling me that I was controlling, mm-hmm. that I was selfish, that I was bossy, that I always got what I wanted. Um, Did you start thinking that that was true, or were you able to uh, shake that off? I absolutely believed him. Um, that was one of probably the biggest drawing points it, now in reflecting, that's probably one of the things that he was most drawn to in me um, was because that was the same narrative that I had heard as a child, that I was too much, that I, I wanted way too much. I um, was too noisy. I was, um, you know, I what, what really was just a child, you know, who's unable to express hey, my needs aren't being met. My basic, like, emotional needs are not being met. Um, you know, manifested as sort of this, I'm going to put it in air quotes, but problem child situation. Um, because I never, I mean, I never got into any actual real trouble. And I um, I got great grades and all the things. And, yeah, I, I had, you know, that party girl phase and everything. But it wasn't that. I was told that I was a very bad child. I was told that um, they used to say, oh, I can't wait till you have kids. You know, like, I hope you have one that's just like you. And, like, just so I could sort of get a taste of my own medicine, right? So so you, you know, are in this relationship. And, you know, the whole love bombing type of stage really – you know, went from, you know, this is just a nice, nice guy. This is a guy, he's a kind mm-hmm. guy. And now you are, uh, you know, you're married, you've moved and you're in this area, new area, and you are, you know, just trying to make your way in the world. And this kind of stuff is happening. It's stuff that you're used to. So it's probably not throwing you off that much because you grew up around this type of behavior. So it's not something that's really going to, you know, make you run for the hills, uh, you know, immediately. And now you're hearing uh, this stuff where you're believing these things about about yourself that he's telling you as far as, you know, you being selfish or, you know, your, your needs are not important. Uh, when, when he says those things, how do you respond to him? And, uh, does that manifest in other ways inside of you physically? Do you get, are you getting depressed and not able to put fingers on anything? Absolutely. So, um, now I'll kind of get into like what was the major turning point and um, 
and even just sort of like assessing my own trauma responses to all of this. So early on, and even in my adolescence, my go-to trauma response, so that fight, flight, fawn, or freeze, my go-to was fight. I am, I don't know if you're familiar with the Enneagram at all, but I am an Enneagram 8, um, oh, the challenger. I am an Enneagram 6. Oh, it's 6. All right. The loyalist. I have a lot of 6s in my life. Um, so the 8 is sort of known for this aggressive demeanor, right? This sort of loud and boisterous um they, in a healthy state, will fight for the underdog, right? They become the protector. Um, but in this unhealthy state, they are, um, you know, some of the not greatest people on planet Earth. Um, I know, because so, I don't get along with them at all in their, in their unhealthy state. Eights are usually the worst. I usually have to say I'm an Enneagram 8, and I'm sorry on behalf of all eight. Um, because, <laughs> that's funny. You know, that's just how it goes. But even that, so even Enneagram, so he used a lot of that in our marriage to, as a part of the manipulation, right? Like that eights are bad. Eights aren't good. Eights are aggressive. Eights are problematic instead of the really good qualities that come with an eight, the really protective qualities and a healthy eight who is in touch with their feelings and able to be vulnerable. Like those are some of the greatest like traits that, can come about like it's it when they're when they are acting more in their area of growth, which is to become a two, the helper. Um, when they have sort of a more external focus. So I will, I have can, one I have one question for you. As an eight yeah. in your levels of health, have you ever been in the bottom three levels of unhealthy, and how did you act then? Absolutely. Uh, so that would be like adolescence. So when I was like 15, 16, so self-destructive behaviors, I, you know, I would drink all the time. I drank before school. Um, I um, was extremely promiscuous and, um, you know, I um, was extremely selfish, extremely um, independent, that hyper-independence. The, um, I don't need anybody. I don't need, you know, and, and honestly, just extremely angry. I was very angry for a very long time. Um, so, it, so my initial sort of gut trauma response to a lot of what he was sort of doing, those, that initial like blame shifting the, when he would even get in a funk and shut down, I, I used to call it that in a funk instead of stonewalling. <laughs> um, or, um, you know, I would, I would get angry. I would get mad. I would speak up. And um, so things were getting more and more tense in our relationship because me speaking up did nothing but sort of fuel the fire even more. So it was kind of this snowball effect of his mask coming off. It was the abuse really started to pick up. It was that emotional abuse the financial abuse, the psychological abuse, the sexual abuse, the um, and then what eventually manifested in physical abuse. Um, so we were about a year into our marriage, and um, he had sort of taken it to that level. And um, it was, you know, one very specific instance. We were, it was New Year's Eve, and we um, went out with some friends, and uh, towards the end of the evening, at, publicly out in the 
nightclub, he threw me up against the wall and called me a fucking cunt and, um, you know, just kind of went on and on, which that was always kind of his favorite little nickname for me, so to speak. Um, and at that point, I, I changed my tune. So a lot of people in my life even sort of knew this story from early on in our marriage of how things were awful. We used to call it the dark days. He and I would reference it as the dark days. This time when things were just bad, right? It was, but we don't need to dwell on it anymore. We can move forward with this. And so, so after that incident, my trauma response shifted. So I no longer engaged with him. I no longer fought back with him. I no longer stood up for anything that I needed. I just met my own needs and then made sure to take care of him and tiptoe around him because I never wanted to face that physical abuse ever again. And so at that point, I, and not consciously, but it just, it just naturally happened. He had finally worn me down to that point. And I got to a point where my new trauma response became fun. It just became that people pleasing. Um, I, I could not leave my marriage because of, if you recall, that uh, belief within my family structure. You stay married no matter what. You, it doesn't matter what's going on. You stay in that marriage, and you will be praised for it. You'll be, you'll be honored because you are willing to stay with someone who is so difficult to love. And, um, yeah, so at that point, my shift led to, I think he also realized, um, how I describe it a lot is early on in our relationship, the abuse was sloppy. He hadn't really, like, perfected his craft. He was sort of pushing my boundaries, seeing how far he could go. And I think at that point he realized that was too far. So he had to rein in his abuse, right? He had to make it manifest in these other ways. Um, and so I used to, after our arguments, I used to type out, A, what happened? I would just do a play-by-play of what happened. Because somehow in our arguments it would always turn out that that wasn't what happened, right? Like the gaslighting was so intrinsic. I have notes and notes and notes in my phone of what the argument just was, like what actually transpired. Like you said this, I did this, this happened, then we went to sleep or whatever. You know, like it wasn't because he would get in my brain and and <laughs> and convince me that it didn't happen that way. And, that, and so I started to take notes. I started to just jot down everything that happened. Um, and so here's a note I'd love to read some of, and it's just, this is after that major, um, the physical abuse and that incident. And it's a few days later, later, it's three days later, I had asked him to go to therapy on his own um, and not do, you know, couples, but that he needed to go by himself and deal with some of this stuff. Um So I'm just going to share just a little piece of it here. Um, I wanted to clarify a few things. My wanting you to go to therapy is not to insult you. It's not to put you down or to make you feel that I'm putting all of the blame on you for the problems that we have been having this year. My observations over the last year have shown that some of 
the source of much of my pain has stemmed from your treatment of me. When you lash out at me, call me names, threaten divorce, cut me down with your words. It's one of the worst ways that you can hurt me. Words are important to me. I will take both the positives and negatives to heart. When I fell in love with you, it was because of, um, because of your truly kind and caring heart. You were different from everyone else. You were one of the nicest people that I knew. You used to say the nicest things to me. I'm not an idiot, and I know that people change, and people will stop trying as hard to impress their spouse over time. I just thought we would get to this level of complacency much later in life. I expected this time in our lives, this time here alone in this new city, to be a chance to fall deeper and deeper in love with no distractions, nothing to consume our free time, but how to love each other better. It breaks my heart to think that you have given up already. You're ready to throw in the towel and throw destructive words at me. Here's where I get stuck every time with how things are going, regardless of who starts the argument or what it's about. What ends up happening is you get backed into a corner. And I, even reading this, I'm sure you're getting that backed into a corner feeling right now. I'm sure it's hard for you to read this and listen to what I have to say because you're trying to keep it fair. You're coming up with what I do wrong and how that's my problem too. You're already writing your version to me. So as you can see, like I already was noticing a lot of these patterns and um, and this was one year into our marriage. So this was quite early in our marriage. Um, and I had confronted him. I had asked him, the note goes on and on, you know, but I had asked him to go to therapy and uh, he refused. He said, no, the only thing he would agree to was couple therapy. And then that kind of began the journey of um, how, other people, like the professionals that we brought in and the pastors that we brought in, how that sort of really perpetuated this cycle of abuse and perpetuated the gaslighting. So we would go to a counselor and, um, you know, the counselor is, you know, trained to, you know, listen openly to both sides. And, and again, when you don't know that narcissism is there, when you don't know that it's that um, narcissistic abuse, and it's just problems in your marriage, right? They'll offer you a communication technique, right? We, we, we went to therapy so many times to learn every kind of communication tech, like the Imago Dialogue. The, you know, like we've, we've done every kind of communication technique that's out there um, where you share and then you reflect and then you respond and, you know, all, all the things. And they never work. They never once work. And our therapy sessions would always end because of, you know, money or um, which what I'm now realizing was the, the therapist was starting to see through him, right? They were starting to see the mask slip and then it was time to stop therapy or to find a different therapist. And so, um, and it was never individual therapy. It was always couples because then there could always be some of the blame shifted onto me. Um, the therapy was a big piece of our marriage. And I think it was one of the things that um, I think, again, helped me believe that things were changing for the better, right? He was willing to go to therapy. Uh, sure, not individual, but couples. And we were working on these things. 
Were those things still there? Yes, absolutely. But they were so much more subtle. They were so much more hidden. Um, And he became better, like I said, at his craft. He knew how, when, where, and how much was too much to gaslight me, to manipulate me, to control me. So, and at that point, I had shifted my trauma response. I was no longer willing to engage with him, right? And so I essentially had begun almost a gray rock method within my marriage. I had, I almost started to offer him next to nothing, right? I I was so shut down from him that I, it wasn't a real marriage, right? As long as I didn't give him anything, as long as I wasn't vulnerable, as long as I, you know, then, which as an Enneagram (laughs) 8, That's our biggest fear is to be controlled, is to be vulnerable. Um, and I've done a lot of reflection on how that also played a role, that I I was willing to not be vulnerable because I'm an eight. So I was willing to stay in this marriage even though it was lacking, com- completely lacking intimacy, um, emotional intimacy. Um, so then we had a couple of things happen, just like we lost, uh, one of our dear friends passed away and, you know, that was just kind of a life altering um, situation, which honestly just sort of took our, took my mind off of the relationship and the issues. Um, I was so distracted with helping my friend, um, you know, overcome that situation um, that then life just sort of brought its distractions. And I, and I think I had sort of succumbed to, this was my reality, right? Um, again, back to that pattern from my family. Like, you stay married no matter what. So I can stay married if he's going to, you know, if we're going to couples therapy, if we're working on these things. And even though it's, my body was telling me it was not working. My body was telling me that the tension was there. My body was shutting down. But it was still... Um, I was still just so stuck. There was no way out for me. If I left, I would have nothing because I knew my family would disown me. And, um, you know, he was all, we were young and poor and, you know, like there, I was so fat. Um, I, I even tried to leave once I, after that incident, the next day I packed a bag and I walked down to a coffee shop up the street. And I was trying to decide what to do. And I called a friend um, who was living in another state. And I was like, I don't know what to do. I have nowhere to go. Um, You know, and she was like, you should, like, go home. Go see your parents. And I was like, yeah, but, you know, that that narrative was there, right? That there was no no such thing as divorce in my family. Um, And that that wasn't an option. And I remember wheeling my bag back home um, to him. Um, and, and at that point, I mean, that was, that was when I, I think for him, he knew that trauma bond was set in stone, that there was no going back for me. Um, so then we sort of just settled into this rhythm, right? It became sort of these normalcies. It was, um, I, you know, I'd wake up and I never knew what I was going to get because the love bombing with him was the love bombing with covert 
is phenomenal, right? Like, I mean, with all narcissists, it's, it's exactly what you want to hear. It's this perfect, you know, um, just everything, everything you want to hear. And then there's the name calling, the devaluation. And then it leads to our, our typical uh, cycle. Um, so he typically would stonewall for three days. That was kind of the standard, um, the standard um, amount of time. And like I said, I always called it, you know, funk. Um, and I remember early on being like, how can I help you get out of this funk? Like, I, and I'm seeing it as like, he just needs some space, right? He just needs some time to decompress, to think about things. And that's okay. Because I also have that hyper independence from my childhood as a trauma response. So I also, I don't mind being independent, right? Like, so I don't, it, it was, then I had time for me to do me things. Um, but eventually his manipulation led to me not engaging in me things during the stonewalling, um, because that was going to be met with more manipulation. So, um, then fast forward and we started having children. Um, again, at this point I'm thinking our marriage is safe, right? Like he doesn't hit me anymore. He's, he's so different now, different being, you know, very relative. Um, but the abuse was different. I just did not know that emotion, I did not know that emotional abuse was a thing. I didn't. If I had known that, my childhood would have crumbled, right? My, um, my everything would have, the, the bubble would have burst if I had known that emotional abuse was abuse. And... So for me, it was just kind of normal, right? It's normal to feel like garbage around the people that you love and to have to pretend and to have to tiptoe, right? Um, so that's what I had done my whole life. So I just tiptoed around those eggshells and he would, you know, keep to his cycle of abuse. And and I developed extreme hypervigilance. So I was just constantly go, 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 go. As long as I just kept going, 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 doing, 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 and, um, you know, just running around like a chicken with my head cut off. As long as I maintained that, then things were okay. Um, so I don't know if you have children, but um, <laughs> there's, it's, uh, it's quite a journey. Uh, it's, I love my children so much. Um, but having children is this huge life-changing event, and it, is, um, it became so much more challenging for me to tiptoe around his eggshells because my my capacity was just filled with being a mother of a young child. And um, so things started to sort of pick up again once we had children. Um, I remember postpartum with my firstborn. Um, I had pretty bad postpartum depression. And um, I... I would just lay in bed crying every single night. Like, I would just cry myself to sleep and just laying next to him, you know. Um, and that, that was kind of a normal for us, too. I have so many memories of just laying in bed crying. Um, and I knew he heard. You know, I was trying to be quiet, but I knew he heard. I knew he knew. Um, and that he wasn't comforting me or, you know, like, it wasn't this, like, laying in bed crying and he's holding me. It was like me curled up on my side 
And I remember even telling him, like, I, that I wanted to die um, and that I, you know, it was, um, it was, he then took that time. So in that postpartum period, he signed us up for couples therapy again <laughs> because he wasn't feeling love. And um, obviously I was struggling, right? Like just I was really struggling. And we get to the counselor, you know, and he's, he essentially waltzes me in and it's just like, she's a mess, you know, like um, I don't feel loved by her at all. She doesn't do any of the things she used to do because hypervigilance is what maintains my relationship, right? So that go, 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 that cooks the meals that he likes and do the things, you know, and, and, um, now that I was very sedentary, right? My, my postpartum, I was just low. I was, I was, um, I needed help obviously, but, um, you know, in the, and I tried to sort of, you know, explain that, that I was like, I just postpartum, I'm dealing with a lot. And, you know, I just, I wish that he would, um, you know, just like recognize that it's a season, right? You know, like that can't, can't he help himself right now so that I can at least just take care of me and the baby. Um, but, you know, then, then we no longer went to see that therapist ever again, of course. Um, <laughs> so um, I, uh, throughout all of this too, he, so he's like a, he's an Enneagram one. Um, and so he's a perfectionist and like extreme perfectionist and, um, his, um, eating disorder, um, was really starting to pick up. There was always some new diet, right? We were vegetarian, we were vegan, we were paleo, we were keto, we were, you know, there was, there was sort of always chasing this, um, a ideal body, um, style. And then also, um, just a lot of it was even just the control, right? Just being able to control it and move into some different diet. Um, but then I was responsible for cooking. So I had to then take on these diets as well. Um, that was a lot of the like really subtle control and manipulation was the body image stuff that he pushed, um, you know, and having babies. I don't know if you've heard this, but um, <laughs> your, your body changes a little bit. Uh, <laughs> so, there was a lot of um, just shame there, you know, shame around um, my body postpartum. And um, and I felt out of control. One of the things I learned to do as a coping mechanism, right, was to control my body. I dieted. I was constantly trying to be thinner and do all these things so that he would, like, to avoid those eggshells, right? That was another just trap in our marriage. So, um, but when you have children, it's really challenging to, um, like, uphold those physical ideals. And, um, you know, he would say, like, subtly say things like his, you know, like his ultimate fantasy was, like, some, like, workout, like, workout, you know, um, attire. And, um like, just as these subtle jabs of, like, he wants someone really fit. Um, and uh, then there's also the piece of motherhood that also just transforms you, right? Um, you can kind of see it as 
taking a sense of yourself away, but it's also so rewarding as well. Um, so I think the motherhood almost, the, the guise of motherhood, I guess I was able to project that onto motherhood, right? That I, I felt different. I felt worse. I felt terrible because of motherhood, not because of him, not, not because of all the abuse, right? It was, it was motherhood. Like I had, my life was changing. So of course I felt, I, I felt terrible. Um, then, um, so I ended up having a second child as, um, to see if that would actually help with the postpartum depression, um, because, um, he was very anti-medication, um, you know, just that, like, food is your, um, is our medicine type mentality or, um, and whereas I love uh, medication, <laughs> not, not in an unhealthy way, but I, like, I, I absolutely was open to taking an antidepressant or, you know, like, um, but that was a big no-no. That was a big no-no. So I wasn't. I wasn't allowed to um, seek medical, you know, like that, that type of care um, would have been a big no-no. Um, so one thing that was recommended to me by my, um, my midwife was that sometimes a subsequent pregnancy can sort of reset your body chemically. Um, and fortunately, it did. <laughs> so um, I... So then we had our second child, um, and it really just reset my body. It reset that postpartum depression clock, and I finally kind of felt like myself again. Um, and, you know, as, as much as you can feel like yourself when you have two children under the age of two and, <laughs> um, you know, are drowning in an abusive marriage, <laughs> but um, but I, I no longer at least had sort of that physical, um, the, I was able to maintain my hypervigilance again. I think that's the best way to put it. I was able to get back to that go, go, go um, to keep, A, facing that reality at day. Um, I had developed, obviously, a lot of avoidance tendencies from my childhood, um, and so as long as you can just keep moving, keep going, keep doing, then you never have to actually face your problems. But um, that's not true. So, so then that was kind of the status quo for the early, you know, the young parenthood phase of our relationship. Um, so then we get to the beginning of the end. <laughs> and... Um, that actually began with the birth of our third child. So I, um, we had waited a little bit longer, like a more reasonable amount of time um, to have our third. And I, um, you know, I really wanted a baby girl and, you know, there was all the things like we, I, I wanted a third and I, um, but I was, I was nervous that I would have postpartum depression again. And, um, and, but to me, it was worth the risk. Like I wanted, I wanted another child. And, um, so I, I was pregnant and, um, ended up developing, 
um, HELP syndrome, which uh, they don't really know the cause of. It's your liver eventually just starts to uh, consume the placenta. So it's essentially advanced preeclampsia, um, which in, you know, preeclampsia is what women die of in childbirth in modern days. So um, I was dying. And um, I was only 27 weeks pregnant at the time, um, which is uh, the average pregnancy is 40 weeks. So I was not even into my third trimester yet. Um, and so we had to deliver my baby girl at 27 weeks um, into the pregnancy uh, just to save my life. Um, and... So obviously that is like an extremely traumatic birth and an extremely traumatic situation. And um, as as I knew from the past, when there were sort of outside stressors and I could no longer maintain this hypervigilance, maintain this normalcy for him, right, um, that the abuse was going to pick up. And so I remember I was sitting in the emergency room. I had gone in and... You know, the doctor came in. She was like, you have health syndrome. You might die. Baby might die, you know. Um, but we'll try to make that not happen. Um, but you're not leaving until you deliver this baby. And I remember my mind, the very first thing that my mind went to was, oh, my God. He is going to be so mad. I do not have meals planned for the next few days. Like, I... Uh, what am I going to do? And <laughs> like that, that was one of the biggest light bulb moments for me was someone had come in and told me that I was dying and that my baby was dying. And all I could think of was like my mind immediately jumped to caretaking him. It immediately jumped to, you know, making sure that he um, he was taken care of, right? Um, and um, I think that was just a major, a major um, eye opener for me. So then, five days postpartum, um, so she was born. She lived through it and um, just kind of barely <laughs> um, at times there. But um, we we're five days postpartum. And I had had a C-section, and so, and it's very challenging to uh, to just sit up from lying down once you've had a C-section. Um, and so, I was laying in bed waiting for him to help me up, like just to help me sit up, so I could get out of bed and go to the NICU to be with my daughter. And um, and he just went off on me about how selfish I was about because I just go off to the NICU, and I just sit there all day with the baby and leave him there and he has to figure out meals and he has to watch the boys and you know and like and I but I knew it was coming right like that that moment I had in the emergency room I knew it was coming I knew and and that was again just these light bulbs of light I had been through enough hard times with him to know that these patterns manifested a lot more during stressful times. And so um, I, um, all that to say, you know, the NICU experience was extremely draining on me, not only from, you know, just managing my daughter's care um, and being there every single day um, to 
managing also having to deal with him, his abuse, and all the things from, um, because he was then having to actually do some things around the house, right? Like, he then actually had to take care of the kids a little bit, and he actually had to make meals, and he actually had to, you know, like, which if you've been with a narcissist, you know that they do not like that. Uh, So it was, uh, like, my friends that stepped up to offer to help, everyone would be like, how can you help, how can you help? And I would be like, can you help him? Because he needs a, um, you know, like, can you make meals, but meals for him? So I was asking people to make these specialty weird diet meals, right? Like, no this, no that, yes to this, not that, you know, um, and just to bring to the house for him. So, the care that was offered to me, I even just passed on and extended to him because I needed that as like a buffer. I needed people to just take care of him so that I could just independently deal with, A, my own trauma from this experience and just care for my daughter who was, you know, essentially on life support. Um, So obviously there was like a major stressor and um, I began, that was really when my physical health from all of this abuse um, really started to manifest. Um, To this day, I am so grateful that my daughter was born when she was. That's so terrible. Um, And not for her sake, um, but the the part that I'm grateful for is what, how that helped me escape my marriage. And um, I, without that major stressor, without that moment, you know, like without all of that trauma, I probably would have just kept going and maintaining this hypervigilant status quo for years and years and years. Um, So uh, I started having panic attacks and like extreme panic attacks. Um, I like would like hyperventilate and um, would pass out and, you know, all the things. And so Finally, for the first time in my marriage, and I think there was there was also this public eye that was on us because of our situation with my daughter. Like, family and friends were sort of finally watching us, right? Um, he could no longer do some of the, like, really restrictive, abusive things. Like, I, was, I wasn't allowed to go to therapy on my own. I wasn't allowed to um, pursue a higher degree. Um, like he was, I wanted to go to law school, but that was a big no, no. (laughs) Um, and, um, so we put him through his master's program. And, um, so, uh, I think everyone sort of seeing me really crumble everyone, you know, it was sort of this, I'm going to therapy and he couldn't really say anything else about it because he would have to deal with everyone else saying something at that point. Right. So I go to therapy, and um, and that's really where this journey, like where the end um, came about. Um, I fortunately found a therapist who was uh, specialized in EMDR therapy, um, which is just a type of therapy that um, is found to be extremely effective for survivors of narcissistic abuse. Um, and I, so we start, we began the EMDR therapy for obviously the trauma from the birth. Um, but as we were going, we obviously were uncovering 
all the rest of this, right? The, the abuse within my marriage, the abuse in my childhood. Um, and um, it was a long and hard year of EMDR. <laughs> um, EMDR is extremely physical. Um, you know, you leave a session and you, I, I struggle to move. I get really sore. You know, like it feels like I just got beat up. Like I, like I, cause you, you carry it all in your body and EMDR helps you to sort of access that. And it, um, so I have a it, question. What, what yeah. is, what was the first, I guess, memory that popped up that you, uh, that, targeted, yeah. that, that, that you like kind of bumped into that got you down that road? So we started initially with the NICU, so like with the birth, right? So we started with like, let's picture, you know, you're laying in bed about to go in for your C-section and you don't know if you're going to live or if she's going to live. Let's start there. So, you know, you like, and you hold these probes in your hand and it's this bilateral stimulation and it, um, anyways, it just helps ground you in the present while accessing traumatic experiences um, because with trauma, it's, um, like PTSD and then CPTSD, which I also have, um, it's, you know, the trauma becomes displaced in your timeline in your life. So you are experienced, you essentially relive these experiences at the wrong time. So, you know, it can be months later and you, and you have these, you know, the panic attacks, that's what was happening. I was experiencing this traumatic birth in that moment, even though that had already passed. So, part of EMDR is to sort of ground you in that and to like place these things, these events in the timeline in your life. Um, and so, yeah, we started with the birth trauma. We actually then jumped straight back to childhood. Um, and the marriage stuff we didn't touch until several months later. Um, there was still so much denial and I was so used to protecting him. Um, that was huge um, because he, as a covert narcissist, he was so good at controlling how other people saw him. Everyone loved him. Everyone. My racist grandmother, God rest her soul, <laughs> loved him, and he is not the same race as me. And so, like, she, like, that was, it was all, again, all a part of the gaslighting, all a part of the manipulation. No one was going to believe me about any of this, right? Because he is the golden child. He's the golden child in his family, the golden child in my family. Like, like he is worshipped everywhere we go. All our friends love him. You know, like, it was just this perfect storm. Um, and so we didn't get to unpacking the marriage stuff until about, yeah, six months into um, that intense trauma therapy when all of a sudden I was like, oh, we just started pulling at those similar threads and it was like. So so is that how your therapist got you to at least go back into childhood because you were trying to take a similar thread of what was happening in the postpartum stuff and yes. you're like, let's see what happens in childhood. Maybe there's a connection here somehow. Yep. 
So you you went backwards to figure out a connection. And then in the process, you started going forward and things started getting uncovered. And then your therapist was like, we're going further. You haven't, I'm not giving you a choice. We're just doing it. Yep. Okay. Absolutely. So at that same time too, I had a friend, a close friend who was going through something similar. Her husband uh, was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, which is um, similar in a lot of ways, you know, a cluster B personality disorder, but um, manifests quite differently. But either way, um, you know, she was sort of unpacking this hidden abuse within her relationship as well. And so we would go and, you know, we'd go on runs together and um, she would, um, she recommended this book for me because she was sort of saying these things. And I was like, that's normal. That happens in every relationship, you know, like, like <laughs> which of course, you put someone who's married to someone with borderline with someone who's married to someone with NPD together, and they'll be like, no, that's totally normal, right? Like, that's, that's just, you're fine. That's a good marriage. Um, just, you know, the toilet bowl, um, isn't that what they call it? It's like where you're both just sort of spinning in the toilet bowl, and you're like, this is great. This is uh, <laughs> toilet bowl advice. I, I have no idea. I've never heard that term before <laughs> in my life. Okay, well, Google that. <laughs> I, I thought you were about to. I thought you were about to say water cooler talk, but no, it had nothing to do with that. No, where you're both actually in the same toilet, like you're both spinning down to your doom, but you're like, no, this is fine. This is normal. Um, anyway, so you were circling the we, drain together. Yes. Yes. Yep. We were both circling the drain at that point. So she had recommended some books that she had just sort of been, you know, getting into, again, with a similar, she had a very similar story. Like they had children and it was always there, but then it got worse and things, you know, then couples therapy and blah, blah, blah. Same story, different day. Um, And so I read The Emotionally Destructive Marriage by Leslie Burnick. And um, I found it really helpful because with covert narcissists, when you start to, when I started my research journey on narcissism, which wasn't until after this book, but when I started my journey, some of it doesn't fit with covert. Some of it doesn't work because that grandiosity, it absolutely exists, but in a very different way. So that grandiosity isn't this like showboaty, oh, look at me, I, have, I drive this awesome car and I do all that, like, their grandiosity lies in sometimes, for me at least, it was those expectations. His grandiosity was what he expected of me. He expected a perfect body. He expected me to cook meals. He expected me to, you know, not have wants or needs. He expected me to be capable. Like there was all these expectations around what I needed to be. Um, and that was his grandiosity. No one is capable of maintaining what I was maintaining, um, you know, which obviously crumbled um, over time. So I read the book, and the book gives you this really good um, sort of template to walk through with them. And you share, you know, you ask them a few, it's like a compliment sandwich. You ask them a few questions, you, you know, how do you feel about our relationship and all these things, and um, here's some things I love about our relationship. Here's some things I don't. And here's some things that, um, again, that I appreciate. So, um, I shared this with him and, you know, initially the question was, um, you know, how do you feel about our relationship? And he shared, you know, he, he feels great. Everything's good. Then I shared my compliment sandwich and 
um, he sort of retreated into his office for several hours and emerged with a three-page typed out um, document of pretty much how I have ruined his life and he didn't want to move anywhere that we moved. He didn't want to have children. Um, he didn't want anything and that I always get what I want and um, I'm too demanding of him and, you know, all, all the things. And which the book I had read said, if you're sort of met with this, you might want to go down these avenues. And it discusses the cluster B personality disorders. So um, that was kind of my first, um, ex like, the really big, like, you should probably look into narcissism. <laughs> so then um, I then I really dove into the research with, narcissism and like narcissistic abuse and which is actually an avoidance technique so instead of feeling the deep feelings of how awful it is to be treated this way in your marriage and you know the pain that comes with it and just um it i i found comfort in just reading and reading and reading and continuing to just read more and more and more about narcissistic abuse but the reality um, is Everyone goes through that process and does Absolutely. need and does need to go through that process because they're just trying to understand. Even though, like, they know how they're. You don't you know, we, before you get to the feelings aspect. You know, most likely they're angry uh, or sad. Um, but you know, before they even get there, they know that you know they're just trying to understand like what they're dealing with. And a lot of people who might think the show is um, ableist or something along those lines. We're not talking about, um, you know, really uh, demonizing uh, personality no. disorders. We're talking about the toxic versions mm -hmm. of these people with these disorders because not everyone is a toxic person. And understanding the uh, ways they they work um, or or how they are behaving is crucial to kind of start unpacking or... Um, getting to the next stage. So, you, so, so for you though, Absolutely. you know, you felt like the reading uh, of that book, it's kind of telling you that you're avoiding. So did you take that to heart? <laughs> yes. So um, what that looked like was I was reading, reading, reading. I had figured out that he was a covert narcissist and I knew everything there was to know about narcissism. And, and yet he was still around, right? Like he was, he, what was I then still doing? I didn't want to have to finally face him and leave. At that point, I didn't have a career, right? I was a stay-at-home mom. Um, and I, like, I was extremely financially dependent on him. And I never went to law school or whatever, you know, like, I never pursued my dreams. I didn't, I was he had kept me in this tiny little box. And so I was so afraid with three small children to face this monster, to, to head down the monster of divorce, not the monster of narcissism. And, and, um, and because, just, to, yeah. just to actually talk about this for one second, because, you know, you mentioned it twice already that he has stated that you get to do everything you want. And, yes. you know, you know, and, and I guess there's a kernel of truth in there that makes you believe it because, yeah, you did want to move. Um, and there's yes. all these little things that make you kind of believe these things 
that are being said. So early on in the podcast, you discussed financial abuse and, and, and other types of abuse. So with this is instance where, you know, you have been out of the workforce for a very long time. You've been this stay-at-home mom. You know, when he's saying those things and saying that these are that, what, I guess, what are the examples that you kind of maybe throw back in his face or you're thinking to yourself, you know, uh, no, like, I, I, I comply in this way, in this way, in this way, in this way, you know, and, and one of them possibly is that you, you are at home with your, your children, Um you aren't working and you know, how did the financial abuse, I guess, work over time in you uh, and, and for you to recognize that he's keeping you in this position so you don't leave? Yeah, absolutely. So again, we were married so young, fresh out of college, you know, we had nothing, we owned nothing. Um, you know, so we were starting at the very bottom and, um, but so much of that was, um, part of the problem, right? We because we had nothing, we merged everything. So we had we shared all the everything. Every penny that came in was for both of us, and it wasn't, um, you know, it was. There were these expectations that um, that I needed to make, you know, enough money and all the things, um, whereas you know, from my point of view with him, like, I always just wanted him to be happy, like, especially in his career. Like, I wanted him to just do what he wanted to do and to um, find his passion. And because I wasn't afraid to live poor, you know, like, I, I wasn't afraid of that. Like, I'm scrappy, right? So I I was going to figure it out um, one way or another. Um, so I think it was less of, like, the fear of, like financial ruin for me, you know, and it was more just his, a really quick way for him to close doors on things. So I could never get individual therapy, right? Because we didn't have enough money for that. I couldn't go back to school because we didn't have enough money for that. I couldn't, um, you know, even get my own car because we didn't have enough money for that. Um, so it's like these really just, which, which the reality of that was actually true for a long period in our marriage, um, just with his career and, um, you know, just the struggles and everything that we went through financially, but, um, like student loans and things like that. So then I did what I always did, right? I turned to my own resourcefulness. And so I started my own business, which was extremely successful and, Um, The next obvious step, because I was working, you know, way too many hours from sunrise to sunset every single day of the week, um, I wanted to purchase property for this business and to hire people to help me because I was operating as a sole proprietorship. And so, um, but absolutely, that was a big no-no. If we were going to spend money on property, it was going to be for a house for us and not for my business. And um, and then, so I stopped that, and I, I really sort of um, took a step back with my career at that point um, because then I, then it was, you know, time to have children. And so since things were sort of coming to a close with my business, um, 
it, it was just sort of the next natural step. And what's interesting is I never actually, I, I was not the type of person, especially as a child, I wasn't like, oh, I'm going to be a mother someday. Or I wasn't, I'm not the kind of girl who like, you know, like, oh, your baby's so cute. Can I hold your baby? I'm not, <laughs> it's terrible. I'm not a baby person. I'm not like a, I, I never had that innate drive in me. Um, and, and something did switch in me in my late 20s. I'm sure it was mostly biological, but, um, and I wanted children and I wanted um, I wanted each and every one of my babies, absolutely. Um, but that wasn't necessarily like my personality, if that makes sense. I always envisioned myself sort of climbing this corporate ladder or um, being the CEO of something. You know, I, I'm an eight, okay? Like there's, like there's, I'm an Enneagram eight. I wanted to, um, you know, whatever. That, that wanted more, right? The lust for more, the, whatever. So, um that was even really out of my character to be a stay-at-home mom to to just sort of stay within the confines of like raising my babies and absolutely mad respect to every single stay-at-home mom on planet earth it is the hardest job i have ever done i've had a lot of different jobs and this is by far the most challenging um and the most hours uh to put it absolutely <laughs> um but it's you know, it was sort of this subtle, slow, and as they devalue you, right, you start to believe less and less, like, you can do things, right? So I went into our marriage this, like, bright-eyed, you know, entrepreneur ready to take on the world, and, you know, eventually I'm shutting down my business, and I'm, I'm not going to school, and I'm not, I'm staying home with my kids, and I'm, you know, like, because I'm believing these lies that he's feeding to me over time which keeps me in that dependent state financially, um, which that is one of the biggest obstacles absolutely to leaving, is how will I survive? How will I feed my children? How, how does all of this work? Um, even the money to hire an attorney to leave is, um, <laughs> is next to impossible to find. Um, yeah, the financial abuse was very, very prominent in our marriage. Sometimes it was as subtle as, um, so a lot of it was he wouldn't buy me things ever. You know, like I would ask for things specifically for my birthday or anniversary, and he would not get those things. Part of that was also the devaluation rate. That was a great way for him to just say, like, I know exactly what you wanted, and I didn't get it for you. <laughs> and, you know, it got to the point where I became very clear about what I wanted. You know, there was less of the like, oh, I hope he surprises me with, you know, X, Y, and Z. It was like, I want this thing, please, and that's it. Like, it's $40, and that's it. Like, can we, you know, um, and, but then, you know, birthdays and anniversaries and things would come and go, and um, those things would never show up. And so, um and even even the subtleties within that, that gifts is one of my big love languages. And um, and how he would, the devaluation there, he would say that, you know, like only spoiled people have gifts as their love language, or that's not a real love language. That's like one of the fake ones. And, you know, like, and all these things where it's legitimately a real, like, like that is a real thing. It's okay to want gifts and to give gifts. And, um I think that was the bigger thing was once he stopped 
buying me things and doing things for me, I then started to do those things for myself, which that, that was a lot easier for him to manipulate, right, for him to shame me on. Like, you need, to, you need to stop spending money. You need to stop doing this. You need to do that. And, um, yeah, so it, it was this gradual shift, right, from the love bomb early on and him buying me things and all these nice things and then to him not buying me things, so I bought them for myself, and then to me doing none of that and to being fully financially dependent and knowing that if I spent money, I was going to have to face him, right? I was going to have to hear it when I got home. Um, and honestly, even just the transactional relationship that he, he would use with sex, like it became, um, you know, this, that's fine as long as, you know, then, you know, insert whatever sexual favor here. Um, and how that, that was one of the bigger pieces for me to undo in my, um, in my journey out of this was how much sexual abuse was present within my marriage. Um, because I think so many people just don't, you know, like once you're married, especially the Christian narrative, I should say, is like, you know, you go from this purity culture mindset of like, don't do anything and don't, you know, like, absolutely not save it for your wedding day. And then it's your wedding day. And then it's like, okay, now everything's fair play. Have fun. But then in that process, you never build these normal, um, the normal social parameters around sex, right? It becomes this, you're, you're taught as a Christian woman that, you know, that's something your husband needs. And so you should just, you know, give it, give it to him because even if you don't really want it, that's okay. He wants it. And that's what's important. So there's, again, these subtleties of religion sort of playing this role in gaslighting, in having taught me my value and taught me my worth as sort of less than, and not to listen to myself, but to listen to other people, that his needs were more important than mine, instead of, um, you know, instead of it being a mutual thing. And it, and marital coercion is rape. It, it's not... You can't package it any fancier or nicer than that. It's not. It's not okay. And um, that was that was huge in our relationship. Was I always? I just had. If I wanted to avoid the cycle of abuse, the stonewalling, the evaluation, all I had to do was put out. That was it. And um, yeah, it was. Um, that that was that was really hard to unpack in therapy was how much sexual abuse there was even within our marriage. So, uh, I guess where were we when I asked that question? Discovering narcissism and yeah. and deciding to leave. Yeah. Um. <clears throat> okay. So after having read a lot of those books. And um, finally, understanding what I was dealing with and understanding narcissism and narcissistic abuse and um, everything just fitting so perfectly. Um, it, it took me a while. It took me several weeks. But eventually, I, um, I asked him to move out. Um, and 
through this process, he was constantly pushing my boundaries, right? Boundaries are a big no-no for narcissists. And so um, me actually finally having boundaries was, um, as you could imagine, causing a lot of issues. So towards the end, there was a lot of fighting, a lot of uh, just problems and tension because suddenly I had a voice. Suddenly I had wants and needs. Suddenly... I wasn't just rolling over, right? And I was doing this very differently than in the past. I wasn't angry and yelling. I wasn't, you know, like I wasn't, I wasn't going into that trauma response. Um, I was, I was calm and cool and just suddenly was learning my own value and suddenly learning what I deserved. Um, So with that friend who was, um, you know, taking her journey uh, through her, toxic marriage, um, we signed up for a, uh, a, it was a group therapy class on um, uh, domestic abuse. And um, it was um, obviously, again, the money stuff being huge there. So I, it was a, a class I was taking that was kind of all I shared with him, that I, I was going to take this class. And the the class advertised itself very carefully, like it was called an empowerment course or something like that. You know, like it wasn't, you had to call them to speak with them to know what it was actually about. Um, like it was sort of this word of mouth underground, you know, like, um, yes, we're here for domestic um, abuse. And um, that way it wasn't advertised as such, you know, like if if you're, aggressive partner finds these things and knows where you're going kind of a thing. So, so I, um, sold some stuff on marketplace to finance this class. And, um, I went to, um, this class for, it was a several week course. Um, and they, that was really the big turning point for me was I was finally in a room with a, group of women who had experienced very different, but also extremely similar things, you know, and um, we just hearing everyone's stories and sharing my story. And again, back to that, that need to minimize that had been um, just ingrained in me as a child, Um, sharing some of these stories and seeing people's faces, right? Like the shock value and like on their face, like that happened, you know, and, and, where I had downplayed it so much. I had been like, yeah, but like that was a long time ago or like, uh, you know, you know, like it's no big deal. (laughs) Like I, that was, it was so helpful to just validate me. I felt so validated for the first time in my life. Um, so I asked him to move out. He did. He, um, at that time, my parents actually had, so my father has, um, Parkinson's disease, and so um, when when we were purchasing this home, uh, they wanted sort of in on the space, like make sort of a space for them to kind of live out their golden years and, and just sort of always have a permanent address. That way they could travel the world and, um, you know, uh, retire but not have a house somewhere to maintain, if that makes sense. So, um, so the, the basement here at our at my house was um, for them. It's like a little two-bedroom apartment down there. So um, at the time, it, it 
that was actually a major protection in this journey out um, because he wasn't going to stay here with my parents. So him leaving actually made sense, right? Like he needed to move out and go stay with his mom because my parents were here. Um, at which, again, just that, that added layer of protection. It was like, no, like, you wouldn't want to stay here with my parents, so why don't you leave? Um, and I'm so grateful for that. Um, and so then he moves out, and um, I uh, eventually he, you know, he's pushing and pushing and pushing to um, go to couple counseling. He just wants to go to couple because, again, then he can hide behind me, right? The problems can become about our relationship and not about him. And he can't hide behind um, his mask. And um, I told him, you know, abuse is not a couple's issue. It's an individual issue. And I don't need to go to, there's no communication technique that is going to work our way out of this. Um, Like, you need to, I'm still continuing to go to therapy. Absolutely. I have so much I need to work on in myself but you also do too. And there may come a time for couples therapy eventually, but probably not, um, you know, like because it was already really dissolving at that point. So um, so then he, again, kept pushing and pushing for couples counseling, and I finally agreed, um, but I only agreed to go to the one session to tell him that I wanted a divorce. You know, he, he always liked to set it up. He always found the therapist. Right. He found because it needed to be his thing to control. I had to just sort of show up to these people. And um, I, uh, you know, I asked for her contact information for the the therapist that we were going to be seeing. And um, uh, she said that, or he, sorry, she told me that, you know, like, oh, no, we're just, here's the location of it. We'll just meet there. You know, like, he again, beating around the bush, he wouldn't give it to me. So I ended up tracking her down online. Um, and uh, and I sent her an email. I just, I wanted her to know what I was going to do. I wanted her to know that this wasn't going to be some normal beginning of a couple session, that, that he's a covert narcissist and that there's been extreme abuse and it's time for me to leave. And I need to tell him about the divorce, but I want to do it with someone else present um, just for fear of my own safety. And, um, and she was great. She was like, absolutely. I'll see you on Friday. (laughs) Okay, great. Um, So, you know, in that session, um, he was doing all the same things that he always did, which honestly I was so grateful for. There was so much of me that was just blinded for so long that I didn't, I couldn't see it. I couldn't see the abuse that was right in front of me. I was so tricked. I was so used to the gaslighting that it, it was so hard to undo in my mind. And it gets to the point where you gaslight yourself. You start to just, you know, you, you don't trust your own reality beyond um, because they teach you to doubt yourself. Like, it is, it is, it's a real mind game. Um, so fortunately, he was doing all the things that, at that point, I was more empowered with all this knowledge, right? So I knew, I knew what he was doing. He was blame shifting. He was, um, 
you know, it was all just manipulation and the um, future faking and the, you know, I've changed and it'll be different and all the things. So we, I listened to his side of the story and then I shared, um, I shared my piece, which I would love to share now sure. with you. Um, <clears throat> all right. So this is, this is what I told him. 13 years. 13 years of abuse. If I died today, I will never have had the privilege of experiencing love. I deserve to live a life where I can be loved for simply just being me. This cannot happen with you. Your inability to empathize means not only is every word I'm sharing now falling on deaf ears, but also means that you're incapable of love in the way that I am. I have spent years empathizing with you, knowing how horrible your family treated you. And in that process, process, I became a codependent enabler, allowing you to abuse me. I'm sorry for the role I played. I thought I could help you, and that wasn't fair to either of us. I'm not going to walk you through a list of ways you were abusive. You already know all the ways. It's just how you're wired to control and manipulate everyone in your life. Instead, I will share with you a list of basic human rights, all of which are impossible while in a marriage with you. I have the right to say no. I have the right not to be abused. I have the right to express anger. I have the right to change my life. I have the right to freedom from fear of abuse. I have the right to want a better role model for my children. I have the right to raise my children in safety. I have the right to be treated like an adult and with respect. I have the right to leave the abusive environment. I have the right to be safe. I have the right to privacy. I have the right to develop my individual talents and abilities. I have the right to earn and control my own finances. I have the right to make my own decisions about my own life. I have the right to change my mind. I have the right to be believed and valued. I have the right to make mistakes. I have the right not to be perfect. I have the right to love and be loved in return. I have the right to put myself first. I have the right to be me. In order to provide myself with these basic human rights, I'm walking away from our marriage and filing for divorce. You often like to share with me that you did not feel loved by me. I acknowledge that I likely never did and never would fulfill your grandiose expectations, but know that I did nothing but love you and love you well. Now knowing what I know, I'm extremely empathetic and capable of some of the deepest forms of unconditional love not cold and heartless as you had me believe. It is time to extend my love and empathy to myself and save myself from this abuse. When the denial and blame that I know are coming arrive, or even the more sinister manipulative apology, know that you have the power to prove me wrong. Prove me wrong and let me go. Prove me wrong and don't engage in legal abuse dragging out the divorce. Prove me wrong and co-parent well. Prove me wrong and actually respect my boundaries. Prove me wrong and continue your journey in therapy for our kids' sake. I am not leaving because of a lack of effort or growth from you now. I am leaving because of the 13 years of abuse. So I shared that. And then 
you know, it's been, it's been a wild ride since then. We have very limited communication um, because that's what all the books say to do. So I gray rock method with him and um, it, you know, all the things were there, right? The legal abuse, the financial abuse, the, you know, it's um, even the co-parenting things. It's already, it's already there. And um, it, uh, it's been a journey, but at the same time, it's been so great to be free from that. Um, on the drive to that appointment, um, I had I had been having for several years uh, like severe pain in my kidney, one of my kidneys, and I had even done like ultrasound, lab work, and all this stuff, and nothing's wrong with it. No one can find anything wrong with it. Um, but it's just part of how and where my body carries the pain, like the abuse. <laughs> like it's just it's just a physical manifestation of all of this. And and I was, you know, trying really hard not to vomit. Um, it got to the point at the end of our marriage when he was still here that I was vomiting every day. Just him being near me was um I was really deteriorating physically, um, at the end. And so on the drive there I was just I was a mess. I was in so much physical pain and so ill. And I walked out of there after having shared that. And I was just, I felt, I felt a foot taller. I felt lighter. I felt incredible. Like I, my body physically felt like this, the freedom, like it felt the, the weight being lifted, um, from that. And, you know, in the process of all of this and after you get divorced, you have, I guess, the self-discovery that you are gay. And, yes. um, you know, once that happens and that's its own journey, uh, is, is that used against you in the aftermath of everything and whatever contact you have? Um, and how does, I guess, in the aftermath, that play into how you feel about everything? Because I'm sure there might be people um, out there saying, well, if you were gay and the whole time and in the marriage, how could you uh, love him? So how do you go about the process of unpacking kind of all of that and then not re-traumatizing yourself or re-triggering yourself with everything that happened? Absolutely. So... Um, part of my journey in therapy, even before he left, was me, you know, beginning to accept my sexuality. Um, and I had always considered myself, you know, just bisexual, but that I chose men because that was easier, right? Because of pets or whatever, you know, I, um, and that would be more accepted by my family. So, um, you know, but it, it, it was, I've always known this about me, right? This wasn't, um, I've been out to myself for a long time. And, um, but now with my marriage ending, it, it actually just sort of finally became an option again. You know, if I, I never, like, I'm just not, I'm an extremely monogamous person and no offense to anybody who's polyamorous or whatever, like that's great. Fantastic. But that just doesn't fit me. And so I, um, 
I, I knowingly and willingly chose a man to marry. And, and you know, and, and sexuality is so fluid, it's, it's hard to, um, you know, it's, I, you can't say that I never enjoyed, you know, sexual interactions with men. Like that, that, it's, but that doesn't necessarily change what my preference is also. Like it's, it's so hard to unpack because it's, you know, um, I, I was sort of assuming that I needed to just consider myself bisexual because I had been with men and because I had enjoyed being with men. But either way, with my marriage now ending, I knew that I was no longer going to date men or be with men. Like that from there on out, I was only going to be with women. Um, and so, um, you know, call it again, and then there's the whole debate of labels and call it whatever you want to call it. But um, so I... Um, after, you know, after he had moved out, after I had filed for divorce and all the things, I, it was finally time for me to come out to my parents um, because they lived with me. And so this was obviously not just something that they could, you know, not notice like, <laughs> if, if, if and when it became time for me to start dating again. Um, but um, either way, it was just something that I, and I, I was, proud of and wanting to accept and finally, you know, share with the world. And so um, in order for me to come out publicly, even on social media or in any other aspect, I needed to, you know, come out to them. And so um, I shared with them, you know, the whole kind of big picture and how um, that, you know, what my dad said early on was like a very big um moment of how he shared, you know, I'll, I'm always here for you. Just don't be a lesbian, essentially. Um, and how, how formative that was. And, um, but that a big piece of my journey out of this and what kept me in the abuse was that I was so deeply embedded in people pleasing in the caretaking, the enabling, the, um, I was so worried what everyone else thought instead of just being true to myself and listening to me and what I wanted. And, um, so if I'm, if I'm unraveling that, if I already am pulling that thread, right, and I'm already getting a divorce, which is already a big no-no, right? Um, then to me, it was sort of like, well, I'm not going to pull all the thread and leave this here. <laughs> um, so it was sort of rip the Band-Aid off, I guess, so to speak. Um, and, um, you know, my dad was very accepting and, um, you know, apologized for what he had said in the past. And that I think he said, I don't care if you're green or gay, I'll love you no matter what, <laughs> you know. Um, and um, my mom was just, you know, she started diving into what the Bible says about marriage and how God designed marriage and um, just, like, how deeply she's um, so embedded in purity culture even. Um, and, you know, it, it 
it wasn't a coincidence that they moved out a week later. We'll just say that. Um, so with my family, though, like par part of part of that uh, toxic structure is we just don't talk about things, right? So it wasn't we're moving out because you're gay. <laughs> that is why they moved out, <laughs> but. We would never admit that. We would never talk about that. It would never be this. If, if ever there was a time when I needed my parents' support, it was in leaving my abusive marriage and trying to raise three children on my own and trying to financially support myself um, and my children for the first time. And, um, you know, there's, there's so much that they could have sort of offered um, and could have been there to help with. But um, I, and I knew I, that that's how and why you stay in the closet for 30 something years, right? Is you know that their response isn't going to be what you want. And so I knew what I was risking in coming out to them. Um, and so to say that our relationship is strained <laughs> would be an understatement. Um, but it's been, um, I'm also really grateful for that piece of it because it's helped me come to those bigger realizations too about just the level of toxicity in my upbringing um, and even the amount of narcissistic abuse in my childhood and why I was so primed for it and why it felt so normal to me. Um, for so long in my marriage. And I read the book, um, Will I Ever Be Good Enough? It's fantastic. It's about maternal narcissism and, um, and how different it manifests, which that's, that's wildly interesting to me and how different it looks. But at the same time, the aftermath, the way I feel, the way my body responds is exactly the same. And... Um, it's been, yeah, it's been a long journey. So, but coming up to them at this, while it was, you know, a very life-altering um, moment in just even my immediate day-to-day, -day, right? I suddenly was alone and um, raising my kids on my own and, um, you know, doing, doing all of that. It was still just so and so amazing to just be finally able to accept, um, fully accept myself. And in that process of, um, you know, telling, publicly telling people about the divorce and then publicly coming out, yes, there was a lot of kickback of like, oh, well, this, the abuse probably didn't happen, right? Like I made all that up. And it's just because I was gay that all of this existed or, you know, um, like it added this extra layer of gaslighting to my leaving process of um, instead of, you know, everyone really seeing the picture of how it's all so closely tied together. Right. Like I, I had been gaslighting myself my whole life because of my sexuality. And so I stayed in the closet. Right. And that I am capable of loving, you know, a man and that like that I chose that marriage and I chose, I chose, I did, I openly chose that. And I would have stayed, um, you know, just a closeted bisexual um, for the rest of my life 
if if our marriage had been different. And um, but what I, I think the biggest realization is that yes, I left because of the abuse, but I actually should have left because of my sexuality. Like I, I actually that was enough reason right there to love myself well and to um, actually listen to what I wanted and needed. And um, yeah, it. So it's been it's been a year. <laughs> It's been a wild ride, so to say. Um, but it's, you know, it's um, self-discovery is probably an understatement there. Um, but it's, it's been, part of it is so good, right? That journey out of narcissistic abuse. Part of it is like, oh my gosh, I'm free of this. And then part of it is realizing how permanently ingrained a lot of it is. And how, especially with CPTSD, um, you know, like realizing that the majority of my personality is essentially a trauma response, <laughs> like like my extreme independence and my sense of humor and my, you know, <laughs> there's a million things about me that are literally just in response to the trauma that I've endured in my life and that I um, will always be facing and battling this, um, you know, this inner war. Um, but now knowing that I have the help that I need and that I'm, you know, seeing professionals and I'm, you know, on medication and I, um, I'm able to just journey through that in a much uh, more supportive way way if, if that makes any sense so if you have words of wisdom or uh words of advice for people going through the same thing what would you tell them i would say that the places where i have found community among other survivors have been extremely healing and helpful for me. Um, I mentioned the, you know, the group therapy class that I took, um, you know, finding that camaraderie there. And um, and then I, I share a lot of my story now, um, you know, now that we're divorced and all the things. And I, I'm finally just sort of processing a lot of that and sharing it um, on TikTok. And there's an extremely large community on TikTok of, um, they call it narc talk and it's um, narcissistic abuse survivors. And um, I am so grateful to have found that community, those friendships, um, because so much of the abuse is, that mind game, right? They, the gaslighting, the getting you to just not believe yourself. You'll have these moments of like, is this even real? Did this even happen? Like, is this? <laughs> and to be able to share some of those stories or some of my experiences and then have, you know, hundreds, thousands of people, you know, agreeing and um, just saying that they experienced something similar and that they understand it, um, it's extremely validating. And 
again, in sharing my story, it's been not only healing, you know, for other people to connect with, you know, people are reaching out to me a lot on TikTok saying like your story sounds so familiar. It's so similar to mine that, you know, like, and then, you know, we can, we're able to just connect in that way. But then it's also really healing for me to just share my story and not everyone, you know, should share (laughs) publicly. Not not everyone needs to process their trauma publicly on social media. Um, But I, I have found that what narcissistic abuse did for me was kept me small and it, it took my voice away and it has been so nice to reclaim my voice and to tap into that healthier side of my Enneagram 8, right? To be that protector, that that voice for the voiceless. And to, um, you know, just be able to share what I experienced and hope that somewhere um, that my story can just help someone through that time. Because getting out of a relationship with a narcissist is, the hardest thing I have ever done, ever. Um, but it's possible, and it's so much better on the other side. Well, thank you, Aurora, for being on here and sharing your story and you know, letting it all hang out for everyone to see. Um, I know you are you know, a big advocate for everyone in the community and doing the show is is part of that and i just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for being here and sharing today thank you so much for having me i really appreciate it you are welcome and for everyone else i hope you for everyone else for everyone who is listening i hope you have a good night